Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everyone, welcome. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Sam Wasson, a writer of many books on cinema and a contributor to many magazines, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker. Uh, so he's, yeah, done, done lots of stuff. Uh, his books include studies of Paul Mazursky, Blake Edwards, uh, Bob Fosse, loads of loads of stuff. He is also uh, the author of one of my favourite books of, of recent times, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood. If you like the episode, uh, please remember to subscribe, like and tell all your friends. Uh, we don't have an advertising budget, so you, you guys have to do it for me, I'm afraid. If you don't like the episode, just please keep quiet about it. It's not, I don't, Nobody needs to know that sort of stuff. Nobody needs that kind of negativity in their lives. Follow me on Twitter at DrJonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the episode. It's so cool that you're doing this, shedding a spotlight on this this little corner of of literature. That's so cool. What made you do this? Well, I did a couple of interviews basically during the lockdown. I thought, well, you know, I, there was there was nothing to pitch, so I, I pitched 
a few friends had written books. I knew Glenn Kenny, who had written the the Goodfellas book, and I suggested, why don't we just do a couple of things over Zoom, and I'll put them on, a, I'll pitch them to some sites, and I did, and it was okay. But I really enjoyed doing them, and I also found that you know, there's this sort of no shit Sherlock moment of like talking to the people who wrote the book on a subject mm-hmm. <laughs> makes yeah. for a very yeah. interesting conversation because yes. there's yeah. a depth. There's a depth of knowledge. There's there's an approach that they've had. They've been thinking about it a lot, and um, and I love reading these books. I mean, I in fact coming from a sort of pre DVD generation, my more than DVDs, more than videos, even. I mean, pre video generation, my sort of access to film came through like novelizations and sort of encyclopedias of midnight movies. And so I would always be reading about films I've, I had really no opportunity of seeing often and imagining them. And then, and then you know, they'd be late night TV. There'd be, a, there'd be one of these magical movies and it actually exists and it would try to compare it with what was in my head. So I've always had that sort of connection to the written word you know that overlap. It's it to me. It it just seems like a, a very obvious, a very obvious thing. But yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. So you're really talking about a kind of film going that's 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 lost to history, where you don't have access and need to supplement it with. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's quaint now. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, some things like novelizations. I don't. Yeah, I don't, novelizations. Yeah, I don't even know if they exist anymore in any sort of meaningful way. Well, to, well, I don't think they do. Quentin Tarantino, as you probably know, just novelized his own work. So that, but that seems again quaint. I don't think they do exist. It's like the kiss of death. If if Quentin Tarantino likes something, it's almost certainly over. It's almost yeah. certainly something relegated to the distant I, past. I think that's a pretty good barometer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine a world even where where studios would think that a novelization would sell a movie. Yeah, that that itself seems ch- charmingly out of date. Yeah, but I mean, we. I remember reading Return of the Jedi before before it was even out in England. The novelization was in the supermarkets. James Kahn, I remember the cover and everything, and there was always like eight or 16 color photographs in the middle. And, uh, you know, that was, it was a really important part of the movie going experience. But yeah, you're absolutely right nowadays. Because I, I, I mean, that would be, that would be great, would be to interview someone who writes novelizations as part of this podcast. Yeah, who are they? I mean, I, I, uh... Are they even around anymore? Well, you know, Tarantino would obviously would know the answer to this. Mm. Uh, and my editor who edited that book would know the answer to this. So if you want to get into that, I can get you in touch with him. And and maybe there's a whole, there's got to be a whole world there. Yeah. This is what the internet was made for. Arcane, <laughs> arcane obsessions like this. Yeah. going down this rabbit hole no absolutely i'd love that i'd love that because i think it would be a, a fun world to explore done when i started doing this podcast and i started because it was very much encouraged by twitter very much sort of putting it out there and saying would anybody listen to this and loads of people came back saying yes we'd love it and your name was kind of mentioned as a sort of top of the list guest because uh, a lot of people had read The Big Goodbye, including me. I think I read it in January. Where where did you start with this obsession with, with Chinatown? I mean, it seems like you had this obsession and Robert Town has this obsession and it's <laughs> there's a, a bunch of obsessions over this. Uh... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's an obsession cake. 
My, my <laughs> obsession is was never with the China, China the movie Chinatown. My obsession is more with the system that created Chinatown, Los Angeles as a place in the public imagination. I'm an aide of Angelino. I live in Angelino. I'm proud of this city, and I've always been fascinated with the American, really the American view of the city. Um, and in large part, you know, how um, how wrong it is. And and so naturally, I've 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 always been an admirer of towns as someone who has a long history of writing very seriously about the city in a romantic way um, that's not um, sentimental, you know, um, so, um, and then there were, of course, these personalities, Town, Polanski, Evans, Nicholson, you know, so it was all of these things laid on top of each other. And then finally, it was the Trump, it was Trump winning the election that sent me into a real um, contemplative spiral of where are we? What is this? And Chinatown became my metaphoric frame of reference for the world we were living in. So the time seemed right. And of course, I'm one who believes that um, the Hollywood studio system is just continuing its, you know, half century long decline. And we're at an absolute low point and we'll probably get lower. So looking back over uh, asking the question, how did this happen? Can it even return? These are these are further obsessions of mine, and Chinatown became a vehicle to ask and ask those questions. I, I remember when Trump was elected as well, using and certainly seeing other people use the the, the GIF of Jack Nicholson at the end of Chinatown being pulled away and, you know, forget it, it's Chinatown. That seems to, to absolutely sum up a, a state of political despair. You know, yes, this yes. is just so, where here we are again. We've learned nothing. You got it. You you, you got it. And it's it, it's it's even worse than we could have imagined. Mm. Um, and you know, we're 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 powerless. The sense of futility that is so un-American in terms of what we should be, what we're you know, we're all about agency and. This was the opposite of that. It really felt like a different country. Mm. And uh, it felt like a country that Polanski would understand and, in fact, does understand. Yeah, it's hard to imagine Chinatown is made by an American director for that for that very reason. I often think about, well, what would have that been like? It's hard to imagine that kind of despair. That does seem to be a European kind of despair. Yeah, we don't despair. What's what's mm. despair look like in America? I don't I don't know. But yeah, the gif exactly. It, yeah, that was it. That was it. I I mean, um, you start. I mean, this is what is is uh, great about the book is you mix together so many kind of elements in terms of there's biography in there, there's uh, social history, there's there's sort of psychogeography, and and then there's the film as well. But you start with this idea as of the of sort of these parallel men who who all seem to be sort of looking for father figures. How did you settle on that as a start? Point. I wanted to start with a feeling of of memory and trauma, because mm. um, that is to me what Chinatown is about on the emotional level. That's what makes it about more than what it's about, and that's finally what makes it emotional. I don't. I, I, I'm. I've never been emotionally involved in Chinatown really until the last ten minutes of the movie. Mm. It's always been a puzzle. 
for me, I've never loved the movie for that reason. But when you understand that the movie is about the trauma done to a city, the trauma done to individuals, that's when I kick in. And I wanted to put that idea somehow into the book, that these were filmmakers, artists, working from a place of trauma, like we all do. Mm. So that was my kind of structural attempt to introduce that theme. Yeah, they're all kind of looking for a daddy, and that's the it's the there's last daddy. Yeah, it's the last daddy. thing they want. <laughs> they, they, yeah, yeah, it's what they want, but it's not what they actually need. So, I mean, you you have done you did several books. So let's 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 just sort of rewind a little bit, and and can you say tell me a little bit about how you sort of got into writing books? Because yeah, as you as we were talking about earlier, the, the it's a it's a increasingly it feels like an increasingly niche market to some degree, but at the same time there have been these huge successes in recent years of, of you know, best sell people have been writing best selling film books. So there's obviously a public out there. How did you get yeah. into, into the into the the game? It was never my plan. Writing was always my plan, and it was always going to be writing. You know, I, I I was not an avid reader of film books. I I I was a avid reader and avid film goer, and I knew I was always going to be writing. But it was a professor. Uh, that I had a film professor who's the greatest, the greatest there is, Janine Basinger, who's my professor at Wesleyan in Middletown. And she said, you should write a film book for the Wesleyan University Press. And this was, this was when I was in film school, uh, in graduate school at USC. So she suggested it never occurred to me. But of course, it was a perfectly natural thing to do, given my interests. Why it never occurred? It never occurred to me because it was always going to be movies. You know, one Mm. loves movies, one goes to make movies. And that was always... That was always my path. And then the book thing happened. You go through a door opens and you walk through it, you know? <laughs> I mean, so you you wanted to make movies. That was that was your uh, your ambition initially. Yeah, yeah. It was always my ambition. And then then the book happened, and I thought, this is totally thrilling and fulfilling. And the movie thing has become just sort of a mistress that I dabble in now. But the but the books are my are my wife. Uh, it was Bergman I'm stealing from Bergman who said that about theater and film although I don't know which one was which now knowing Bergman neither did he maybe neither did he yeah yeah I forget which one uh yeah so that's that what was the first book that you were was that uh it was about Blake Edwards it was about Blake Ah, Edwards and uh, uh I wanted to write on slapstick and um and comedy and 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 also pick a filmmaker who was alive who I thought, I was thinking, who's the greatest filmmaker of comedy alive in Hollywood that hasn't really been given his due? You know, obviously Mm. there was great, there were great filmmakers of comedy that have been given, but Blake Edwards hadn't been written about in in decades. And there he was in Brentwood. And uh, I got to sit with him and that was the beginning of the book. Wow, yeah. And I mean, Blake Edwards, I know him mainly from the, the Pink Panther books and uh, I guess Breakfast at Tiffany's. My my sort of reading about Blake Edwards has come via the Peter Sellers biography, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. the the life and death of Peter Sellers, which, my God, that he sounded like such a nightmare. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the medical term these days. Yeah. Uh, Fruitcake in that case. Yeah, yeah. I was I was reading some old Blake Edwards interviews the other day, actually, and he's telling a story about how Peter was speaking to his dead mother, and she had ideas of where to put the camera, and 
Sellers was conveying these ideas to Edwards and Edwards says, you know, tell your mother to stay out of show business. <laughs> or was it tell God to stay? No, it was God. Maybe it was God. Peters was taught. And Edwards said, tell God to stay out of show business. So that's, we're really in a new level with, with Peter Sellers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, yeah, he was, he was absolutely a huge talent and an arsonist at the same time. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just set yeah, everything yeah. on fire. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, comedy, that sort of comedy as well, I think is one of the most difficult things that Hollywood can do. I think it sort of seems to have, seems to lose the knack every now and again and then rediscover it. Well, I wanted to look at why low, how you make low comedy high, mm. you know, uh, and why this is considered low and the, the you know, what we consider a sophisticated comedy is considered high. You know, how do you sophisticate uh, slapstick? And Edwards did. You know, I, I, I put him up there, you know, with Chaplin in that respect. I would even put him beyond um, Preston Sturges. At, at at his best, yeah, and and that's that's really what the book that's really what the book is about. It's it's um it's it's looking at how to tell stories with slapstick that are emotional, meaningful, and and not uh, you know not frivolous like Chaplin. I, I mean, I I always thought I always li- I like ch- slapstick as I I love Buster Keaton, I love Chaplin, I mm-hmm. love I mm-hmm. love. Yeah, um, I can even like the Free Stooges, which I think is uh, yeah. is sort of increasingly difficult these days. But yeah. um, but one thing I I really hated since I was a child, and this is very it's almost like a phobia for me. I, I can't stand custard pie fights. There's, so, there's some <laughs> it's so funny. Blake has the greatest custard pie fight ever in movies. Well, is it, uh, it's on yeah. the cover of your book, I think. It's on the cover it? of my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is called a splurge in the kisser, and splurge is the sound that Max Sennett used to describe the pie in, in the face. So though your, your custard thing, that is a phobia. That's what's that about? That's really interesting. I think my mum would always say, so in England, there's the BBC, which is a sort of like the most sort of respectable sort of a broadcaster. And then there's ITV, which was the commercial one. And for children's TV on the BBC, they would have like the multicolored swap shop. And it would be this very sort of, it would be fun and children's stuff, but it was sort of kind of quite ordered. It was like watching something that maybe your school had produced. And on ITV, there was this anarchic show called Tiswas, which was just custard pies and buckets of slop. And they would keep- Tiswas? Tis was, yeah, it was called. Okay. And they would put um, adults in a cage and the kids would throw stuff at them. And I just remember being absolutely terrified of it. And my mum saying, don't watch ITV. It's it's really common. And we've got to watch, we watch BBC in this house. Yeah. We don't watch ITV. Yeah. So, so Tis was always, and she, and she had this thing about it was a waste of food. <laughs> she would, you know, I mean, we knew it was like yeah. shaving yeah. cream and all yeah. this sort of stuff. So it's not really food, but just to her, it just represented a huge waste of food. Well, Blake is a combination of BBC and ITV at, at his best is what, is what it sounds like. That cage element is disturbing. That's the part I don't like. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a real violence to it. There's a real sense of like they had the they had a there's a bunch of characters called the Phantom Flanners who basically are dressed like black riders. They wear big black capes and stuff, and they just and they just jump into any scene and just hit everybody with custard pies. (laughs) All the presenters, whoever you know, the cameramen are all wearing raincoats. But watch it on YouTube. You will seriously think they did this shit for children. I love it. 
It's maybe it's a child's fantasy to have the parent, you know, to have that kind of control over the parent. Maybe it maybe it's freeing for the child on some level to see. Sounds like putting a hat on a hat though. I'm gonna check it out. I I don't have the phobia, so I I'm gonna I'm go, I'm gonna go look. Well, no, I mean you obviously you were drawn to it in in Blake Edwards' work enough to put it on the cover of the book and to to sort of put that in the foreground. Well, it's extravagant and it's expensive. And, you know, one of the things we don't get so much in Hollywood comedy is um, money on the screen, you mm -hmm. know? And I like to see money on the screen. I mean, I like to see what only Hollywood or what Hollywood does best, which is spend money um, for, you know, art. And so a the, the biggest pie fight in the world is a Hollywood idea. You know, this mm. was an, I, this, so, so I want, I like to see that in the hands of a great slapstick filmmaker. This was a great race as a big studio movie with big stars, big locations. It's over two hours and um, that's money on the screen, you know? So I, I like that. <laughs> oh man. I'm so tempted to use a joke about the money shot, but I, I, I will not. It's all, it's all money shot. Exactly. I mean, again, that, yeah. maybe that's at the heart of my phobia. Maybe it goes mm -hmm. even deeper. How did you feel sort of writing about comedy? Because that's also a really difficult thing, I think, approaching from a, from a point of view. You know, there's, there's something difficult. Well, it's difficult to write about comedy. You know, I've written about satire in the past and, and you know, the temptation to do it as dryly as possible is, yeah. is overwhelming, you know? Yeah. You have to have an idea that you think is a good idea. You have to have an idea that you think matters. You know, so much of writing about comedy doesn't matter because... The question is, is it funny? Is it not funny? We can answer for ourselves as we're watching the movie. I don't mm. need anyone to explain, you know, Mel Brooks to me. I laugh, you know? So it's rare that you see a comedy that, that whose, whose artfulness is not immediately evident to you. Mm -hmm. um, but with Blake Edwards, there was this, what I thought was a secret world of artfulness that was not about the laugh so much, that was about ideas. And I thought, well, maybe viewers of Blake Edwards, um, this can enhance the experience. It, it, can, it, can, it, can, it can, in addition to the laugh, which doesn't need to be explained, the artistry might, um, the cinematic artistry, because you can't explain how a person is funny. You know, I mean, if, mm. if you try to explain, if you could do that, then we could all be Peter Sellers and we're not. So there is absolutely no point in trying to explain why something is, you know, why someone is funny. Mm. Uh, um, it, 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 it's, it's stupid. So a lot of comedy writing goes there and it's just theory. you know, it's, it's theory, and sometimes you think it's interesting, and sometimes it's not interesting. But I think it's ultimately, uh, you know, like you say, I'd rather watch a funny movie. I, I love the idea that Blake Edwards as well had this thing of sort of like, I'm going to overlight all the scenes that Sellers is in because I don't know where he's going to go. And I just want, and that strikes me as a, um, a precursor to sort of the Judd Jud Apatow sort of school of, uh, you know, we'll just do loads of improvisation, loads of takes on set and then and then sort of whittle it down to the to the best. You know, the well, the difference is the difference is that, you know, seller, they had a script. Right. 
And and by and large, if there were if there were improvisations from sellers, they were more riffs, mm. you know, like a jazz musician. You know, it wasn't free improvisation the way that you see a lot of in that Judd Apatow school, which also has no visual character and and you know limited artistry, I think. Um, and if there was a G, if he was dealing with a comedy genius like Peter Sellers, I would cut him a little more slack. You know, if you've got Miles Davis in your right. band, in your in your ensemble, you say, take it away, Miles. Uh, but it's not quite that. So um, I'm glad to draw that distinction in my mind. I'm yeah. not going to name any names, but yeah, they're not they're not really at that level. No. Yeah. And so you went from you went from doing Blake Edwards and you did a book on improvisational comedy and a history of improvisational comedy, and you did Fosse as well, a book on uh, Bob Fosse. How do you go through that line? Are you getting those? Are you are you bringing up those? Are you taking those to to the publishers and saying, okay, this is going to be my new book? Is there a progression from one to the other, or or, or do you want to have a change and you want to shift to something totally different? You want to? I want to change. You know, I want to change. I don't want to do the same thing and then have it be better than what I did before or worse than what I did before. Then I'll have this thing of comparing in my mind and I'll feel like a failure in some way. So I try to keep moving around to different types of things, at least in my mind they are. And also you look at the shelf and you go, what book should be here that's not here? You know, what book is what book is missing from this shelf? And if you can find a book that's missing, a lot of books are missing that should be missing. And a lot of books are missing that you don't write those. You don't write those. You write the book that shouldn't be missing. And those are hard to find because generally if they shouldn't be missing, they're not. So for whatever reason, the culture has overlooked this corner uh, and and I go, oh, let's go there. And then my publisher says, all right, let's do it. or my publisher says, no, let's let's not, you know, we don't need, the world doesn't need that. So, but there's no, um, there's no plan. There's no plan. It's, it's all things I love and things that I, and that, that, that need to be said, mm. that I believe need to be said. There is a, there is a, an emotional urgency for me in all of these books that yes, is, is, is urgent. They all have that. They all have that quality, except for the Breakfast at Tiffany's book I wrote, which was not urgent so much as it was curious curiosity. Hell, a, a, a curiosity I had about why this movie that I didn't really like or understand had been so successful, and in the course of answering that question, came to actually get some appreciation for the for the movie. That seems funny because both with Chinatown and with uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you've, you know, both these things that you've, both movies that you've dedicated individual books to. I mean, I know there's a lot more going on there. Is it almost that you're sort of picking stuff not because, not because you love the movies, but because you're, it's, I mean, I get the same thing that there are movies that I really think don't work and I'm not sure 
I, I kind of like them. I have a relationship with them, but it's not a love. I don't know. I'll give you an example so it's clearer. Yeah. 1492, the Ridley Scott movie, is... I never saw it. It's in many ways a sort of failed movie. It doesn't quite work. The pacing's off. It should be a much longer movie. It's still a very long movie, but it, it still feels squeezed. But that movie, when it came out in 92, I think... Yeah, it will be 92 because of 1492, because it was to, to link to the year. And yeah. when it came out, I... Uh, I went to see that like three times at the cinema and I wasn't like writing. I wasn't working. You know, I was, uh, I had no professional need to go and see the film, but it just bothered me for some reason. And you think it was about what was going on inside you or, or what was on the screen or probably some combination of both. Yeah. It's definitely an interface of both. It was definitely something to do with Gerard Depardieu's sort of performance and how, how, and it was just, I couldn't quite work out. Is this the best film I've ever seen, or the worst film mm. I've ever seen? It didn't. And it didn't seem to. There didn't seem. It was like a Schrodinger's cat of uh, of movie that it couldn't be. A Schrodinger's. I, what is that? The, what, what is? Uh, have I mispronounced it? Schro Schro Schro. I, I have no idea. If you, I don't even know what you're talking about. I what what? It sounds fascinating concept. Oh, the the quantum mechanics thing that if you... I don't know a fucking thing about that. Oh, this is fascinating. (laughs) So basically, if you send an electron through like uh, the two slits and you, you fire an electron, it can go through one or the other. And if you fire a bunch, there will be an interference as if as if they're interfering with each other. So it can go through one or the other. But the argument is that until you observe them, it kind the, the electron kind of goes through both, okay? And this makes absolute sense from a mathematical point of view and, and from the way the electron seems to be behaving, it makes absolute sense. But from a sort of real world point of view, it's like, well, it has to go through one or the other, surely. So Schrodinger said, if I put a box behind one of the slits and if it goes through this slit, it presses a button and it releases gas and it kills the cat. And if it goes through the other slit, it doesn't hit the button. It doesn't kill the cat. Then the cat has to be either alive or dead. So in this sense, Schrodinger's cat is should, in this thought experiment, it should decide the position of this electron. But what they concluded was that until you open the box the cat will be both alive and dead. And then when you open the box, everything, reality crashes and chooses a version. Now I know how your brain works. Uh, (laughs) Alive and dead, This I cannot hold this concept in my head, alive and dead, but it's, I mean, I guess zombie is alive and, I don't know, I've got, I, Wow. Well, it's it's almost like you have two alternative universes, one in which the cat is alive and one in which the cat is dead. And when you open the box, you go into that universe. Jesus. All right. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So I've got to see 1492 is what this means. You'll be looking for the cat. You'll spend the whole film going, where's this cat John's talking about? I'm giving you such a list of things to Google. Tis was Schrodinger's cat. And I can't even remember if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Somebody I have the, no idea. I somebody, have no idea. Somebody will send me an email and say it's not that, it's something else, you know. Okay, let's get let's get so 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 you're you're in Chinatown. You're you're well, you're in you're in Los Angeles and you're and Trump has won the election and you think, fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and and this leads you 
to Chinatown. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I, I, well, that was the catalyst. I had been thinking right. about this version of this book for a while, and then that was when that happened. I was like, all right, now this needs to happen. And it gave me another sense of urgency right. to, to write the book. I always had the urgency insofar as the book is about the end of the end of a great age. Uh, so that was something I wanted to s- scream about. But then Trump gave me another thing to scream about. Because that idea of the end of a great age is often seen in other books as well as sort of like as as a, a moment of triumph, because here comes the new Hollywood. Here comes the, you know, the Peter Biskind, Easy Rider, Raiding Bull Hollywood. But that's not necessarily a view that you share of, of that historic moment. Well, the, no, I mean, I see, I see, you know, since the, since the 50s, I see Hollywood as diminishing, you know, I mean, with with the studios, there's there's no question in my mind that that, uh, you know, Hollywood was healthier in the studio era for any number of reasons. And which isn't to say that, you know, the post studio era, the what we call the new Hollywood was not a great era. It was. I would say it was the second greatest era, you know, mm. and and, and uh, then it, we keep we keep declining. And part of what made its part of what made this new Hollywood great in its own way was what it had in common with the studio era. And so, the closer that we get to the studio way of doing things, I, I've learned, the better Hollywood is. Now we are, I mean, you, as of yesterday you could read that Paramount is now going to talking about moving all of its content onto streamers. And, you know, basically, basically said, we're going to start, we're going to get into the shit business now. And this is as far away from the studio idea as we've ever been. It's really sort of really decoupling um, the studios from any sense of cinema or theater experience, isn't it? It's just like, we're, we're just going you know, I'm thinking of Boogie Nights and him going on to videotape. You know, we're just going to do something which is totally non-theatrical. Exactly. I mean, when you take the art out of the hands of the filmmakers and a great misconception about the studio era was that they did that. In fact, it's not true at all. And and uh, slowly but surely, the art has, like Boogie Nights, gone to idiots and incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And uh, I love the porn analogy, too, because it's like, you know, there were days when you had to go to a movie theater and be accountable, you know, look around. I had to go. I have to watch this porn in public. Now you don't have to be accountable, you know, and it's the same with Hollywood. You could no, no one's going to see what shit I download tonight. I, of course, don't download shit, um, but <laughs> I could if I wanted to, and there would be no shame in it. That's cool about Boogie Nights. I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, too. I mean, I love, I'm always happy to be in his hands, you know? So there are always, there are always moments of people find ways to break through the cracks. It just gets harder and harder with each, with each generation. Um, but God bless him. I find that I, I'm going. I go to a lot of film festivals, and I just find that it's such. A, it's so beautiful having an experience of cinema that's not coming out of Hollywood. That you know, 
you, you, you sort of see French films or Italian films or Spanish or Japanese or Korean. And you're just, it's just like, Oh, that's, that's a new way of looking at something or that's mm-hmm. uh, it's not. Yeah. They all maybe have their own set of cliches that I'm not as familiar with, but it just feels like a really good head wash that, you know, you've, you've got out of yeah. the, the same sort of, uh, you know, genuflecting superheroes. Yes, 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 exactly. And I, and I grieve the era when that was not, I grieve the system for which that when that was not as true as it is now. All these new films that did come out would like Chinatown and like, you know, later Coppola would, would uh, you know, and Friedkin would come and all, all the all the others. There was also a sort of like nostalgia there that they were all in their subject matter choosing sort of old fashioned or, or period pictures like Chinatown. You're looking back not that many years in the past compared to when it was made. Um, it seems very far in the past nowadays to us, but it's not that far in terms of uh, when Polanski's actually making the movie. But also in the sense that with Coppola, he's trying to make Zeotrope you know, studios. He's, you know, he's not saying, I, I don't like the studio system. He's saying, I kind of want my own studio. <laughs> you yes, know? yes, yes. No, Coppola loves the studio system, you know. And that's why he, you know, is goes goes and has gone with Zoetrope his whole life and got closer than anyone has uh, since the fall of the studio system when he founded Zoetrope out here in L.A., or found his Zoetrope Studios uh, uh, out here in LA. And that's been a lifelong obsession of mine because I really see Coppola as a hero in that sense. In many senses, I see Coppola as a hero. And, um, you know, you, you always, you, there's always a little worry that you have when you start to research someone deeply. Am I going to fall out of love with them, you know? And in the case of Coppola, it's the, the opposite has been true. And I've only fallen more in love with him. And his vision is even greater than I even knew it was. And his mind is greater than I knew it was. And yeah, it's, uh, it, that's why I'm writing about Zoetrope for that exact, that exact reason. And, um, I, and, and, and I think, you know, now that the question of distribution, you know, now that we have these alternatives to distribution and streaming, it's a real opportunity to reinvent the industry. And I think Coppola has the right idea with, with live cinema. Um, and that's another thing that I'm, I'm wanting to write about. Now, whether it's too late for American audiences, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how hungry America is anymore for this quality product. I have to believe they are. I have to believe, although I don't know, when Scorsese came out and said these superhero movies are fast food, I was amazed at the vitriol, the the pushback that that he got. So maybe we don't want a filet mignon. On the other hand, maybe the internet is just a slum hole full of rage and you walk out and you get hit. So it's hard to tell what the temperature is out there. I've gone way <laughs> off track, but I, I, I always hope, you know, that there will be a, a, a Coppola who would do something like this. Maybe it's not too late, but people have to be frustrated first. You know, we need a Bernie Sanders in mm-hmm. Hollywood to say, it doesn't have to be this way. We'll see. Yeah, I think there's like a postmodern sort of collapsing of high and high and low art, which I think is fair enough. I, I have no no problem with that. I have no problem with 
I don't, you know, I like the odd comic book movie. I'm not, I'm not, I can sit and watch them. It's just, it's like I, I, I ate a McDonald's for lunch today in Italy, which is practically sacrilege. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> sacrilege. You should cut that out of the interview. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll, yeah. I'll just say uh, uh, a steak tartare or something. Or, uh, but I don't want to Morgan Spurlock it. I don't want to just eat, eat that all the time. And that's that seems to be what the diet has been recently in something like Chinatown. I wonder if if that film would would necessarily get greenlit today. No, it would, would, it would not. That... that... That movie would not get lit 30 years ago, greenlit 30 years ago. You know, right. I don't know if that movie would get greenlit even 10 years after it got made. I mean, do you because of the ending, because of the despair, or just because of the whole the whole movie in, in its totality? Certainly the despair. Certainly mm. the despair, you know. But also for all the reasons Hollywood, I'm all the reasons I'm complaining, you know. Mm. Mm. That movie would not be greenlit. It's it's not a blockbuster. You can't imagine the ancillary markets. You know you can't bring teenagers to it. It's complicated. Uh, it's hard to sell. Um, uh, you know, all, all, it's art. Mm, you know, mm. art is hard to sell. Art art is hard to sell. If if it's art and it's easy to sell, it's generally because it's already done its job by being accepted into the into the consciousness. And and but when it's new, you know, like you were talking about 1492, if it tastes a little weird, that could be because it's new. Now it could also be bad, but <laughs> but this is part of what Hollywood executives' job should be: is parsing out that taste. Mm. But they don't do that, and you know they don't do that anymore. One one of the characters when I was reading your book, and it is you get this real feeling of you know these these different personalities, and they're all you know butting heads to try to make what they consider their own vision. I think I'd always used to hold up Robert Town as you know. I mean, I occasionally uh, write screenplays, and so I always think of sort of William Goldman and Robert Town as these sort of people to aspire to really as the and and boy boy was i wrong boy boy did did i feel my idea of this single writer this single you know to to sort of put against the writing rooms and the the multiple collaborators and all the rest of it and then i'm reading this and going no he had loads of collaborators and he he you know you could easily have had three different names on that uh, screenplay yeah yeah, uh, I don't want to diminish Town's contribution, uh, which is major, but mm. I, I I do just want to rein in the cult of Town, uh, which is enormous, and uh, and and um, say, well, look, there were these other people, and also, why is this the great American? You know, this is always this this idea that this is the great American screenplay. You know, it's a great screenplay. But a lot of why it a lot of why it's been crowned the great American screenplay is uh, is has to do with Sid Field, I think, and when Chinatown was written. But yes, it's complicated. Is I guess I guess what I'm saying. And if we can hold if we can hold both if the cat can be alive and dead, you know, we'll be better off. I mean, it's he's he's got like a friend who's um, well, I forget his name, Edward Taylor, I think. Mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. who he's 
essentially sort of in the room with him while yes. he's writing the thing and bouncing ideas and reading stuff out and yes no literally in the room literally yeah, in the room. yeah, yeah precisely yeah. and he just uh, i mean partly because edward taylor isn't doesn't seem to be particularly interested in in fame or fortune but he's just completely written out of any of us i've i've never come across this guy no. when i've been reading about chinatown nobody's ever said yeah. oh and of course taylor's fingerprints are all over this film no no, and I, I wouldn't say fi his fingerprints are all over the film, but he was definitely a, a, a collaborative influence and and shaper of this shaper of the script. And then when Polanski turns up, of course, you he looks at this screenplay and and it's kind of like this is a monster. I can't, you know, yeah. we need it needs to be completely redone. Yeah, town town it does not. You know, it's also ironic that, that, that this form, which is all about structure, when we're talking about Robert Town, we're talking about a guy who really needs help with structure. So that, that you know, when it comes to dialogue and atmosphere, I think he really, I mean, he really excels. But you want to talk about a master of structure, you're talking about Polanski. Mm. And, and you can see that in almost all of his movies. And you could see that in the script, and you could see that in the filmmaking, there is no slack. Um, Town has slack. In a way, it's part, one of the um, artistic cornerstones of his work. I, I love Pauline called him, Pauline Kale called him a flaky classicist. And I think she got it right, as she often did. She often didn't, but on this one, she got it did. And flaky classicist, that's kind of, that's kind of some slack in there. Roman, no. So yes, and and this was not information that I. I mean, this was known that Roman, maybe not the degree to which, but yes, there is no Chinatown without Roman Polanski on the page or on the screen. I think yeah, was, I remember knowing already that the um, the sort of the dark ending, the unhappy ending, was was more Polanski than it was Town. All, that, all Polanski. That, yeah, yeah, they'd argued about it, and I I thought your observation at the very end. Because it's a film I've watched and not necessarily analysed. So, but that moment at the end where he sort of goes away from that classical framing of things and it almost becomes handheld camera and cinema, yes, ver yes, cinema verite. Yes. It, I'd never know, which I think is a sign of true style. I'd never noticed that before, yeah. but that utterly is the reason that it amps up the emotion at the end because all of a sudden you it's almost like brechtian it's almost like they've they've broken the fourth wall and well it feels like the it feels like the it feels like the floor is dropped out yeah yeah that's great i mean that's great filmmaking and just that little moment you know it has an emotional effect on you, thank God for Polanski that he knew what he was doing. And the other, the other major sort of artist who's at work here, of course, is Jack Nicholson as the as a sort of star producer, the guy who's bringing it to to Robert Evans and who is is sort of in the corner to to have this film made. Um, I was curious how uh, who you if and who you talked to in the writing of the book in terms of researching the book. I talked to Evans extensively. Right. Um, I mean, I talked all in the back of the book, but in terms of those principles, I spoke to Evans and, and Polanski. Town did not answer my attempts to, he I didn't respond. And Nicholson is not doing interviews anymore. You know, right. he's not leaving the house so much. And, and from what I heard, it is it not 
because he's unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to be having a good time. He's just, uh, he's in, re- I think he's just in recluse mode, you know? He's just retired. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I didn't get to speak to Jack, unfortunately. Uh, uh, someone I really admire. I think he brings in this amazing sensibility to to, to Jake Gittes. I mean, it's not a, that's a prize-winning observation from me, but there, there seems to be this sort of, 60s sensibility to him even as he's playing this period character so for me one of the most powerful scenes in Chinatown is when he's talking to John Huston and there's this real sense of new Hollywood talking to old Hollywood and he's criticizing about he's criticizing him about wealth in a way that sort of prefigures the sort of hippie movement of you know how many pairs of shoes can you wear? How many meals can you possibly eat in a day? How many houses can you live in? And when you were talking about the inspiration for the film as well, uh, for the, sorry, for the, for the book as well, in terms of Trump, you know, Trump becomes this very sort of John Huston figure in the incest and everything as well. Oh yes. Oh yes. Uh, Yeah. You know, a guy who keeps amazing you with the level of evil keeps just when you think you've seen the worst you know it gets worse (laughs) and that's hell i mean that's that's hell and houston is amazing in that movie i I mean houston is he's so good he's too good i mean he's and by that i mean he's so good that i cannot that that now whenever i see houston i see noah cross right he, he is too good. And yes, he's the Trump figure. Absolutely. Which makes you realize that Trump isn't so much this novelty that we all took him for. He's actually, he's always been in American culture. He's, you know, he's always been the caretaker of the Over, Overlook Hotel, you know. Yes, he's always been the, yes, yes. And, and human beings can, you know, we can get evil, you know, we can get, we can get evil. And, um, the depth of the evil is so striking in Chinatown. You know, that's one of the things that I do love about it. You know, like like the character of Harry Harry Lime in the in the Third Man. Although mm. he's so cute, he's so charming that you can forget. And the movie is um, so so fun that you can forget how how evil it is. With Chinatown, you know, you you don't forget, um, you you how you know that that evil is amazing is amazing. Mm. I, I was reading the Hitchcock Truffaut book because it was recommended. <laughs> One of the things in the podcast is people keep recommending books, and now I start reading them, and it's a great education. But by God, it's costing me money. I'm sorry, my my thing keeps dinging. I'm going to turn it off. If I I can do that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Okay, it's no, on that's cool. Um, all right, T- tell me, Truffaut. So, so the Hitchcock idea of the MacGuffin, I, I always find that that was, uh, in a way, a damaging idea because people have gone, oh, it doesn't matter, it's a MacGuffin. Whereas, like, in The Third Man, the fact that he's on a black market for penicillin, that informs the whole movie. That That's such a, a memorable and a sort of, like, it's such a very specific idea of evil. It's like, okay, yeah. he's not just bad because he's going to destroy the world because what does that even mean? Right, right, but right. He's, He's watering down penicillin, and you yes. should visit the children's ward where the children go yes. who got the shit. Yes, and you're suddenly 
oh, right, okay, that's something I never knew about, but by right. God, that's horrific, you know? It's a great weapon, isn't it? It's a yeah. great weapon. You know, I think also of the uh, uh, my one of my favorite weapons in um, No Country for Old Men, I'll never forget whatever that thing was that he used. I'll ne that'll never leave my mind. I mean, that level of evil. Um, but yeah, the third man, that's the great weapon, isn't it? I mean, from a dramatic point of view. And I mean, thinking of um, of Noah Cross and th that that moment of absolute hypocrisy, right at the very end, where he's turning his sort of daughter's daughter slash granddaughter's face away from the horror like oh don't look i'm protecting you and it's just like oh man that's it's it's almost unthinkable and imaginable that level of and, corruption and, and the fingers the fingers are if tarantula is a word i don't know if it is i think i used it in the book but uh those fingers god yeah, it's like Nosferatu uh, or something. It's Nosferatu, know. exactly, exactly right. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, watching the rewatching the film and, and reading reading about it, as you get this idea of. I remember being very uncomfortable once rewatching it and thinking of of the role of Faye Dunaway and the, and the women in it, and being very uncomfortable with that scene where he's slapping her. But rewatching it, I'm sort of thinking this is so much about women from the very beginning with the 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 husband who's distressed that his wife is cheating on him and then you meet her later and she's she's got a big black eye um there's just violence is towards women is absolutely ingrained in this society throughout the film i don't see i i i, I don't see it that way but I, I guess there's a lot of there's violence towards men as as well. I mean, I I I I would like the movie to be more about men and women. I, and and I know that that was one of the things that um, that Town and Polanski fought about: how much to make the woman Chinatown from the point of view of the man. That would have brought me into it more emotionally. But that metaphor doesn't always come across. It does in the end of the movie, you know, mm. in the sister daughter. And that's what I'm really brought brought into. Um, but their love story is not pronounced. I always had a problem with that. But yeah, he's he 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 certainly beats her up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, even that is sort of like a, a 1940s sort of, you know, airplane parody the slapping of the hysterical woman or the slapping of someone to get some information out of them often and it's kind of to show how macho you are that you're indifferent enough to sex that you will slap the beautiful woman just to uh you know to get whatever it is in your mission that you're going for um it, it feels a bit like a quote of that as well he slaps her because he 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 slaps her because he He's lo he's lost his mind. You know, he's lost his mind. Sh she loses her mind too, in the end. Uh, you know, the every everyone does. So I don't I don't see that as about gender. Um, I see it as about sanity. Um, that's to me closer to what the movie's about. But this is why this is why people talk. This is why people talk about this. It can be, we can take it back to Schrodinger's cat. We can use that as as our you know. It can be this and this at the same know, time. It, but you know now to your point. I mean, Curly. You know, Curly does uh, beat up his wife. You know, I, I'm putting that together now. So maybe it is more pronounced than than I was uh, was willing to see. Um, 
Yeah. You mentioned consequence earlier on when we were talking about, uh, you know, porn videos and, and going into a sort of XXS, X theatre. But it's like, it's a similar thing that at the beginning, Jake Gettys has lives without consequence. He's just cashing the checks, getting mm-hmm. some new blinds set up. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he has to sort of, he loses his mobility, which I think you make a good point about, you know, you know, you need a car in Los Angeles. And so when he loses his car, yeah. he's, he's screwed. And he goes to Curly's house it's when he has to face up with the consequences. He's sort of like, mm. oh, oh, that those photographs, it's no longer a joke about a Chinaman, you know, having sex with his wife. It's about, it's about here's the guy, you know, here, here, here's the woman who's been beaten because of what I did. Do we have that reaction shot? I don't remember. Do we have that reaction shot on Jack? He registers. I think it's more embarrassment than anything else. I don't think he, I don't think he sort of go, he, he sort of go, it's a similar sort of embarrassment that he has when he's telling the dirty joke and Faye Dunaway standing right behind him. Mm-hmm. It's that mm-hmm. same sort of like, uh, oops, you know, I've been, I kind of know I'm doing something wrong, but I can skate, uh, except when I'm, when a woman sort of turns up and looks at me in the eye and then I've, I crumble, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought the character of Giddis was really an, about venality mm. and um, image, image, you know, how do I look great in my suit. I've got the picture of FDR on the wall, you know, I'm a fashion plate, you know, mm. and and he thinks the world is one thing. He's cool and then realizes the world is something else. Maybe violence towards women fits somewhere along that spectrum. Um, maybe that's part of his consciousness. I don't, I, I've never thought of that. Um, I, it doesn't come to my mind, but um, the, the, these, these filmmakers are so good, I give them the benefit of the doubt. So if it's there, it's probably there for a reason. Right, right, yeah. Um, and uh, again, this, was, this is like a, a, one of those things that someone's, that I always laugh at when I'm writing a review because it's such a sort of cliche that you say in in many ways another main character of the film is the city itself. Yeah, the city itself, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, I hate that. But here, I, I mean, it, it's indisputable that this is a Los Angeles movie through and through and through, and it's about the it's about a, a certain sort of origin story of Los Angeles of where it's coming from and the 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 water rights and the land rights and the tales of exploitation were you already sort of keyed in and you, you know you're you just said you're an Angelino at the very yeah. beginning so were you already really in, engaging in the history of Los Angeles um even before you approached Chinatown yes yes definitely it's always been uh, the character of the, where the character of the city comes from, you know, where is, is an upset, also an obsession of mine. Right. Um, and uh, it gave me a little opportunity. This book gave me some opportunity to write about that. I don't think I, I don't see Los Angeles so much in Chinatown. Ironically to me, it doesn't look like Los Angeles. It, it really looks like um, a, a parched, um bloodless it's really a polanski nightmare of los angeles so i don't see the the city as i see it through my eyes which i see much more clearly in something like shampoo for instance right or 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 the long goodbye those bring out the character of the city more but this is indisputably a los angeles movie insofar as its backstory is i mean 
you know, basically true, you know. Because I have I have seen, what did I see that was sort of disputing the China or, or very much gave the an alternative view of what was happening to Chinatown? I, it was in the documentary uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Oh, yeah. The, I think sort of says, oh, Chinatown says this, but actually it was more that. Uh, yeah, I can't remember yeah. the details now, yeah. but... Yes, there is that in, in that movie. Yeah, no, it's... um that information is available to anyone you know movies movies are not documentaries I, I so you know they they used the drama to their own game as storytellers as storytellers do sure yeah i i can't remember i can't even remember the details but it's something about the dam and the guy who's who's meant to be the the hero but yeah i can't remember enough details for it to be for it to be um relevant really you said at the you, you said as well about your attitude to Chinatown as a film, how did that change in the writing of the of the book? Because were you, I mean, I'm presuming you were sort of like reading lots of scripts and you were you were talking to these principals and you were watching the movie a number of times. How did, how did it develop your view of the film? What I came away with was admiration, increased admiration for Faye Dunaway's performance in this movie. Right. And um, I don't think, you know, there's so much to admire. Um, that's one that I, that, that I'm more connected with her than I am with him because she's so vulnerable and trying not to be vulnerable. It's so complicated. I don't know how she kept track of that character from moment to moment, not just holding it all in her head, but then the technique of executing it. I love that performance. I love that performance. That, that That's a knockout to me, you know? Um, and the cleverness of the conception around that character and her, her goodness, her damage, her victimhood, um, her beauty. It's a fabulous character, more exciting to me than Jake Giddis and um, a great performance. So, so th- th- that, I think that's the thing that I mm. ended up, loving that I didn't go into it loving. That's also the performance that changes the most if you watch it twice. I mean, obviously everybody's watch seems to watch trying to, I mean, I, I can't, but I definitely watched it for the first time at some point. And when you watch it the second time, you, you have to look at her totally differently because at the beginning, she's a femme fatale and she's like, oh, I know she's untrustworthy and she's all these things. Right. And then you watch it the second time. And it's like, no, she's she's, she's a mother. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, she's a mother and a victim. It's a. It's. It's. That's exactly it. That it's two performances, you know, and they're they're on top of each other, and, and they change from moment to moment. And um, you said it. You said it. I'm an. I. I that, that, fabulous. Mm. Fabulous. Mm. And even when like she goes to the old people's home with him, and it's like. They sort of that that's almost like one of the lightest moments of the movie because yeah, they yeah. sort of become compadres. You know, uh yeah. she actually played they play it for comedy. Uh yeah. and it, it's kind of a relief. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a can, relief. Yeah. It makes perfect sense for her as well, because at last she's actually becoming an agent in her own story as well. And she can play act for some reason other than simply camouflage. God, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest compliment you can ever play pay a, a film book is that it just sends you back to the movie and the minute i finished reading this i was like okay 
Chinatown, a film I've seen probably in the double digits. I've got to see another time. I've and, and watched it, you know, the the night after I finished finished reading your book. I just and opened my eyes to so many elements to it. So if I'm making any observations which sound smart, they have been inspired and filtered through the reading of your book. Well, a good movie, maybe by definition, is one that you can go back to. Mm. You know, a good anything is one that you can go back to. If something has been made with the talent and care of Chinatown, and then successfully, you know, a lot of movies are made with talent and care and are not successful. This is made with talent and care is successful. It's going to be filled with conscious and unconscious decisions that are the right decisions. And with a million of those, why wouldn't we go back and and find stuff in it? I'm so grateful that those are there. And Chinatown is not the only one. No, you know, it's one of many. It's one of many. And yet, and yet, they didn't think it was going to be a success. So they were, they were, you know, there was a whole idea of like uh, them changing the score at the last minute, and you know, yes. there was a lot of uncertainty about screenings yes. and things. Well, no, it's only very rare that you could, I mean, maybe some would say it's impossible. I, I don't think it's, I think of George, I think when there's a Star Wars, although wasn't the last Star Wars a bomb? I don't know. I stopped paying attention. But I, I, I it's hard to know or impossible to know when anything is going to be a success. You know, um, that's truth, true of art when it's genuinely new. You can't know how it's going to be received, if it's going to be received at all. And that element of guesswork is gone, virtually gone from Hollywood. Mm. You know, now they're placing, they're, everything's a gamble, but they're very safe gambles. And um, there are so many um, ancillary markets and venues and way to make your money back over time and all this stuff that it's almost not a gamble at all. But with those guys, it was. And and someone like Evans, who himself has written a magnificent book, The Kid Stays yeah. in the Picture, is one of those books that yeah. I just, and I, I watched the documentary just so I could hear his voice and then reread the book so I could read it in his voice. But the voice is, uh, is in the book, you know? The, vo- the voice is great. He's such a kind of tragic figure in some ways. I mean, and it's, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to feel sorry for him because he's had a wonderful career is create some great stuff but you know um no but you're, you're putting your finger on something i think mm. which is that for everything evans had and he had a lot and for how grand he lived the irony is what he really wanted most of all i believe was to be known as a filmmaker and and not as the playboy which is an image he cultivated by the way Mm. Uh, so he's getting what came to him. But really, what he wanted was to be the man who brought movies to the world. He wanted to be known as that. And and um, the image, unfortunately, is cast too much of a shadow mm. over what he's what he's given the world. And his fuck ups with Coppola are known um, mm. and and were fuck ups. But you step back, let the movies speak for themselves. And you see that this was a man who basically said yes to what he believed in and bet on talent. Uh, Didn't bet on box office, you know? Mm. Uh, Didn't bet on political trends, you know? Um, Bet on 
I think this could be something good. And the proof of that is to his own embarrassment, uh, admits he didn't understand Chinatown. (laughs) Right. But he understood that the principles involved knew what they were doing. And I love him for that and remember him for that. And, 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 and I know that without that quality, we would not be, you and I would not be having this conversation because that book would not have been written because the movie wouldn't exist. Yeah, and so many great movies. I mean, mm-hmm. wow. Yep. I mean, just what yeah. great taste and, and what great discretion to know that if you don't get it, pe- people whose, whose taste you trust do. So you'll go for it. You know, you'll say, okay. That's what you're paying them for. Yeah. That's what you're paying. I mean, when you go to a restaurant, you don't go into the kitchen and, and look over, you know, the chef's shoulder and say, I think we're going to need a little more cilantro on that you know no you let the chef that's what you're paying cilantro for. spoken yeah. like a true angelino <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's true i pick right cilantro yeah. uh, uh it's it's incredible to think that someone would go back there and tell you know anthony bourdain how to evans understood that and the great executives do yeah Great executives do understand that. And also it's very practical because that's the only way you're going to get the great talent. Yeah. Because when word gets around that you're meddling, you know, that you're going into the kitchen, who's going to want to work with you? Mm. Unfortunately, those values are out of date. Yeah. 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 And and we get Weinstein and we get other people like that as a as a an ancillary to to the to that problem so you you mentioned you were uh, you, is your next project uh coppola is that your yes yeah can you talk about uh, that at all yes well i it, it's a, it, it, uh, uh, an extension of what i've been talking about it's the story of zoetrope which is coppola's uh, production company the, the greatest production company of all time and the biggest dream ever dreamt in post-studio Hollywood. You know, since the founding of Hollywood, it's the greatest dream ever dreamt. And he's still dreaming it. And he's still working on Megalopolis. And the story of this man is like a Mo- it's a Moby Dick story. And it's not the Godfather story, mm. um, which has been told, you know. But the Godfather is not at the heart of Francis, I don't believe. Um, and, and so... I believe Zoetrope is. So mm. I don't think the story of Francis has been really told because this is it. It's not Corleone. Corleone is a detour, a mm. happy detour. It's Zoetrope. So that's the book that I'm doing now. Brilliant. I can't wait to can't, can't wait, wait to read it. And there are so many other couple of movies. I mean, I God, I loved Rumblefish when I was a Me kid. Me too. Me that's too. Such Love a good movie. Yeah, so yeah. great. And yeah. he made that back to back with the outsiders. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I think there's such a legacy there that maybe isn't isn't appreciated enough of how much independent cinema owes to that kind of vision and that kind of um, you know, adventurism as well. Adventurism, absolutely right. I mean, he's yeah, Coppola, the producer, you know, mm. is I guess what I'm what I'm saying, you know. But that's so close to Coppola, the director, showing the producer's mind working alongside the director's mind. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Apocalypse on the book, and there you really get to see the the 
extraordinarily original ability he has, not just as an artist, but as a producer. Mm, and the mm. conflict between those two things and how they support each other. I mean, that that makes him unique. You know, I mean, Spielberg, Scorsese, giants. They're mm. not the producer filmmaker that 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 Coppola is. Yeah, he's a sort of impresario, the whole mix, Impresa- the whole enchilada. Right. Right. Yeah. So, Sam, could I ask you for a recommended book that, that you know, if, if our listeners... Uh, and, and myself, for that matter, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll love to get uh, recommendations from writers uh, and to go off and, 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 and read these books. And it can be anything you like, a recommended film book. I, I, I like to recommend the, the work of uh, Janine Basinger, who's my friend and my professor, not only because it's the, the best, but it, 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 um, it's the um, closest to, it's the truth. I mean, a lot of people write about studio Hollywood with intense bias and oftentimes, oftentimes ignorance. These books are the truth. The the one that I, about the way the system really worked, the one that I think is, a, a woman's view is a fantastic book uh, about the woman's picture in Hollywood. It's an incredible book and it's so warmly written. Um, so I think... Everyone should read that. Even if you're not interested in the woman's picture, the way it approaches genre is fascinating. And and the star machine about how Hollywood created stars and Hollywood really did create stars. The star was really like an, an art object in the studio system. We don't have that anymore. Clint Eastwood was like one of the last people Clint to Eastwood sort of really go it. through that system, wasn't he? Yes, yes. You know, learns Eastwood to ride, learns to dance. All that stuff. And his new movie opens tomorrow, actually, on streamer um, and maybe in the theater, too. So the star machine, you really get up close with how stars were produced. I mean, in the sense of manufactured and in the sense of the creation of producers. So the record of that has never been more told more completely and more accurately with more love and affection and insight than Janine did it in in that in that book. If you love musicals, her book Musicals, fabulous. Um, Who doesn't love musicals? Who doesn't love? If you don't love musicals, you don't. You love don't love movies. movies. You don't, you love, don't love movies. movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not kidding at all. That's absolutely yeah. my singing in the rain is one of oh my. Oh my god! You know? Yeah, of course. Are you kidding me? It's uh, all those old black and white Busby Berkeleys, the Fred Astaire, oh. Ginger Rogers. I mean, it's yes. just like tired of that. You're tired of life. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Amen. <laughs> Okay, on that note, Sam, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, an absolute you. pleasure talking to you. And hopefully when you've got yeah. the Coppola book ready to ready to go, we can talk again. All right. I would I would love that. You're, you're a pleasure. And uh, thank you for doing this. Okay, that was my conversation with Sam Wasson. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, He was great to talk to. I look forward to talking to him uh, in the future when he's finished his Francis Ford Coppola uh, book. His recommended book, well, it was really a recommended writer, was Janine Basinger, 
who has written books on the silent stars the star machine the movie musical um as well as many more actually i'm looking at her uh, her her page and she's got a bunch of books that look really interesting so i shall certainly be dipping in and maybe who knows maybe uh, she'll agree to come on the podcast and talk about them as well thanks go to elliot atkins for the music and ali howard for the artwork until the next episode please take care powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.